Hello and welcome to this week's Next Sense Institute podcast. My name is Trudy Smith and I am your host and I am the manager of continuing professional education at the Next Sense Institute. We're going to be spending some time in the next couple of weeks talking to teachers of the deaf about their experiences and I have a really wonderful one for you to meet this week. Dr. Robin Cantor-Moore, who works at the Next Sense Institute, is one of our academics, but is also a really highly regarded professional in the field. So, Robbie, welcome. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Oh, I'm Robbie. Hi, thank you, Trudy. How long have you been a teacher of the deaf, Robbie? Oh, dear. Um, I think 31 years. 31 years. 31 years. You didn't start your career, though, as a teacher of the deaf. I understand that you were an opera singer first. Oh, that was my second career. I had a first career as well. <laughs> Tell us more about that. I have a very eclectic background, it is true. Um, I came to deaf ed in my late 30s, last century now, um, and I've been at Next Sense um, since that time. But before that, I was a high school teacher, a high school English and music teacher in Western Sydney. And I um, was a violinist in those days. And when I was teaching, I didn't have sufficient time to do the kind of practice that I was used to doing. And it got a little bit um, hard work to see myself as that level of musician, <laughs> let's say. And my mother, bless her, said, um, you've always been able to sing, Robbie. Why don't you have some singing lessons? And that'll give you something to focus on as a musician. So I went to the con and did an audition and I got a scholarship to uh, learn to sing in inverted commas. But while I was there, I was still teaching and I used to do my vocal practice in the car as I drove to the con from Mount Druitt on a Wednesday afternoon, <laughs> as you do, at the lights and so forth, turning pages next to me on the, on the seat. And um, while I was singing one day, there was um, a very famous um, singer from Germany, Hans Hotter, um, a bass baritone, who was visiting Sydney <clears throat> and he was performing with the opera at the time and he heard me in my lesson and he knocked on the door and came in and introduced himself and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, to cut the story very short, he said, you should be doing something with your voice. And so I took leave from teaching and I did my vocal performance degree at the conservatorium. And I was awarded a scholarship to the Juilliard School. Following that, I was also the um, national winner of what was in those days called the um, Australian ABC Instrumental and Vocal Competition. <laughs> so I had a competition and a, a scholarship underneath my belt. And I went to New York and attended the Juilliard School. So that was my second career. <laughs> and then I sang internationally. Um, in America and Europe and Britain for 10 years and came back to Australia with my husband and a young son. And the idea was that I would travel from here. But once I got home, I realised I didn't want to be leaving here for long periods of time. So I completed my schedule of bookings, which I had two years in advance in those days, and um, decided to do something different. And so why did different mean becoming somebody who worked with students who were deaf and hard of hearing? Well, it was, it was sort of an accident in the beginning, to be honest. Um, when I was training at Juilliard, one of my vocal coaches had a young son 
um, who I used to babysit to help pay for my coaching lessons. And he wasn't developing the way I thought that he should have. Um, I'd had quite a bit to do with children over the years. And he just, he didn't seem to be responding to sound the way that I would have expected a young infant would and a few other bits and pieces. Anyway, it turned out he wasn't deaf per se, but he did have a global delay with um, a, a, a neurological condition that turned on and off. So the hardest, I suppose, conversation I ever had with his parents was, I think we need to check his hearing. <laughs> And they were devastated and I felt really bad for bringing it up. But as it turned out, we got into early intervention and I was involved with his early intervention then because um, I was looking after him sometimes. So when I came home to Australia, I had a, a, at least a couple of years in those days, a couple of years experience working with a child who had difficulties um, with learning and language. And I had been working with the hospital in New York with his therapy. And when I came home, I thought, actually, you know, language and listening and music are actually in the same vein, you know? And so my interest was, well, is there some crossover? And I was looking in the paper one day and there was an ad from, um, in those days, RIDBC, looking for someone to take a temporary position while people were on long service. And I thought, well, actually I might apply. I haven't got any of the qualifications, but, you know, maybe a temporary position, they might look at me. And that's where it started. Right. And so where did you train? I trained in those days <laughs> on the job for the first couple of years. And then I did my um, master's in special education at Newcastle University, specialising in deaf and hard of hearing. But I also did some extra <laughs> because I wanted to know things about vision as well, because some of the children that I was working with in those days in early intervention were premature kids. And the reason that I had premies was because my own son was very premature. So it was seen that Robbie had experience, even though Robbie didn't. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and so where did you work once you got your qualification, Robbie? Well, I worked in early intervention for RIDBC at the Welland Centre in those days, although we were called Home Start in the beginning. We're talking way back in the 1980s now. Um, and most of the children that I saw were very complex little kids because we had a lot of complex littlies in those days. But because I had the, um, I suppose, lived experience of being the parent on the other side of all that kind of involvement, although my son didn't have anything like those difficulties. Um, but I'd been involved in the medical approach with, with a, a very young child. It was seen that I had some um, uh, ability to be able to have, you know, emotional connection with those families. And so the children that I was working with often had vision as well as hearing loss, or they were very premature and had all those concurrent difficulties of getting going. So I was involved in early intervention at Wellen for RIWC now, next sense. What made you decide to go towards academia? <clears throat> I think in those early days, I had so many questions. And when I read, because that's how I caught up, because I did a second master's as well um, in education, looking for specialisations in the area, there were so many things that I felt hadn't been approached or perhaps were 
what people thought might be the case but hadn't been shown to be the case. And I was also very aware of the fact that by then, many of the children that were coming into our service um, were being assumed to have all these difficulties and delays and people weren't looking for well where are the pluses and the the techniques and things to work so I was looking for that information in the literature and I couldn't find very much and one of the things that really interested me was the fact that everyone kept talking about you sing to a deaf child because singing makes sound so much more present and it engages them in an emotional way now I agreed with the emotional entrainment part, you know, that it gets you interested in, in the rhythms and, and the shapes. But because of my vocal training, I had a pretty good idea as to how sound was structured. And my question was, do you really think that singing it structures it better for a child whose audition has some difference or some impairment or some loss? And so I decided that's what I wanted to find out. And that led me towards academia and doing my PhD. And so what was your PhD topic? It was called Simply Singing. But what I was looking for were the characteristics and the consequences of using simple singing, like singing twinkle, twinkle, little star kind of singing, um, to young children who had hearing impairment or hearing loss because I could not find anything in the literature that actually um, supported the idea <laughs> that singing made speech easier to listen to. Interesting. Now you've taken um, your interest in, in little people and sound and production and developed the infant monitoring protocol. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the infant monitor of vocal production, the IMP, I actually wrote for my own use in the first place <laughs> about 14 years ago um, because I was looking for something in those days to be able to engage parents in telling me the things that they noticed. Um, one of the things that did concern me when we started very, very early intervention following newborn hearing screening was that parents suddenly felt that medicine had taken over. And I wanted to put them back in the driver's seat in some way. Um, and so my, my view was that they knew their little people much, much better than I did, and indeed better than any you know, person who was doing a hearing test did. All I could do was measure the physics at the time. But to come back and look at what the little person did on a daily basis, that was really the parents' knowledge base, not mine. So I wrote the IMP as a way of engaging parents in telling me all the things they understood, could hear and noticed. And then we could find a way of saying, well, where does this fit on what we would be looking for at this age? Is it typical? Is it not typical? Does it have these features? Does it have different features? And so that's how the IMP came about. But since that time, um, and it hasn't been refined all that much, to be honest, because I've spent a lot of time doing the readings, doing the homework, doing the mathematics to make sure that I was not making something that was pretend. Um, 
And I found that it was very useful in being able to identify those children who weren't quite doing what I was expecting. And so the parent was on the journey with me from the beginning. And we could say, this isn't quite happening the way we would like it to or the way we expected it would. What else do we need to do? So the IMP now plays that role where it is a screening and assessment tool for children under 12 months of age. And so in the first year of their listening capacities. And that includes children who are typical hearing because sometimes glue ear comes in at that age group and you can see that they have a change in their ability to access sound and speech. But it also has... Um, other applications, particularly in children who have been identified as having a hearing loss through newborn screening, so that we can make sure that the interventions that are being put into place are indeed fulfilling the needs that will allow, allow typical development vocally to um, progress. And the reason that the vocal part is so important is because, yes, of course, we can measure can they hear it. But there is a processing part after whether you can access the sound. Mm -hmm. And the processing part can have variation in it too. So production, what the child does with sound, is actually a mirror of the kind of qualities that they are aware of in their sound and their processing of sound. And it will change according to their uh, anatomical and physiological development. So you can actually see if it is building the way you would expect it to, or indeed if it stays put and deviates away from that normal trajectory. So it's a mirror of the sounds that that age group are able to produce because they hear them. And I know that this is incredibly important work. It's actually telling us more than just about what they're hearing and processing, isn't it? Yeah, it has some underlying features too. Um, it, it gives you some insight to the connection between parent and child because the questions are asked in a way that allows the, the parent to give you narrative and descriptive information. It's not, do they do this, do they do that? Um, yes, no. <laughs> so... Sometimes it can give you insight to the fact that perhaps a parent isn't aware of something because maybe they're not the major caregiver. You know, maybe they're a working parent and they don't see their little person so much. Or maybe it's because there is some sadness there that needs um, some attention in the first instance so that this connection between parent and child is nurtured and warmed and, and all the rest of it. We've also found um, last year in collaboration it wasn't my study I was you know on the edges of it because I, I was sort of the um, reference point at children's um, hospital in Perth um, some colleagues did a big study looking at children who had motor difficulties so they were identified as being at risk for CP so it is possible these days to be able to identify CP under six months of age but what they were interested in was, was this going to impact their capacity to use spoken language as their communicative um, channel? Because if it looked like that was going to be impaired, then they didn't want to wait until the child was three 
before they gave them any information on how to be able you know, to work towards a communication system. So the interesting thing that came out of that was the imp did the same work. So the, the actual motor skill part, these children could all hear. They didn't have hearing loss. Oh, actually, one of them did, but yeah, in general, they didn't have hearing loss. But so we knew that they could hear that information. As they got older, you could, you know, in that first year of life, you could see they understood that information. So if you said, where's data? And a little person's eyes danced towards looking at dad. Um, we knew that the processing was probably okay. But the difference here was the production was the difficulty. And these little people weren't necessarily able to have the controls to produce sounds that they could hear and they wanted to mirror and reproduce. And so we were able to actually identify those children who needed to go to an alternative communication system early, maybe as a bridge, maybe when they were older, they might have some power speech, but speech was not going to be their strong suit. Sure. And that, that is such an important findings for families. When we think Absolutely. Bonding and attachment. Bonding is one way from the parent. The attachment is both directions. Being able to identify a barrier to that and then Correct. taking away that barrier is so powerful for families. Yeah. And that particular study is getting very, very wide reading in, in the um, neuro, neurodevelopmental literature. Um, because it's no one's looked at it that way before, and it's probably because I'm a bit off the wall. You know, I didn't come into deaf, I didn't come into deaf education with the same background as other people, and so I didn't grow up the trunk. I kind of climbed through the, the branches on the way. <laughs> I came to teach as the deaf as a musician as well, so I understand. I, I think our brains probably work quite similarly. Yeah, I think yeah, we, I think we probably think a bit more laterally, and luckily for me, my colleagues in Western Australia. Um, saw that and said, do you think this? And I said, well, yeah, I do think it might. And, yeah, we've been able to show it does. So, yeah, yeah. it has other, other features clinically useful now. Absolutely. That's such important work. Yes. Now, you are a much-loved and well-regarded academic, Robbie. <laughs> what do you most enjoy about the role? I like seeing how people learn and how they use their um, self-confidence in new and enlightening ways that enrich their lives. Whether it's a little tiny person, a little tiny baby, and you can see, you know, that, that little spark that goes, oh, I did that, and something else happened, you know. Or whether it's through to the parent who is starting to feel that they have some um, controls and some knowledge that they can share with others about their child and therefore can advocate for their child. Um, through to you know, what I do most of the time these days, which is working with postgraduate students who perhaps have an enormous amount of experience because they are already working in the field, both as either teachers of the deaf or teachers of the vision impaired. But they've never really felt that they can sit down and, and look into a question deeply. And so I enjoy guiding some of that dig and find kind of learning. I, I, I find it very exciting to see how people put puzzles together <laughs> and people enjoy putting the puzzles together with you I think <laughs> what advice would you give anyone considering training to become a teacher of the deaf hmm. I think if it's something that is in your heart and you want to explore you should do that you should explore it I, I suppose it, 
my own philosophy is if you have capacities and interests, you should follow them. You should never get to the other end of life and go, I wish I'd. <laughs> so if, you know, being a teacher of the deaf is maybe not the thing you want to be, but you're interested in deaf education, there may be another pathway inside there. And as you learn that information, you go, actually, I want to share it. And that might take you into the role of being a teacher of the deaf. That's basically how I came to it. Excellent. As, as, as a teacher of the deaf who has learned from, from you, Robbie, and continues to learn from you, thank you for the contribution to the field that you have made over your considerable career and the warmth and caring that you have put into the field and all of the families and all of the teachers who've benefited. I just want to say a personal thank you as well thank for you your contribution much. to the field. It's been so lovely talking with you today. All of the very best for the future endeavours in terms of research and where else it might take you. And thank you <laughs> so much for your time, Robbie. Thank you very much.